Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and welcome to Teddy Talks for today, Saturday, June 13th, 2020. I'm Joe Wiegand, your host, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park, and future home of Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum. It is a beautiful late spring day. The sun is warm. We'll have some high temperatures and sunny skies throughout the day. We're looking forward to seeing you here. I've missed you here at Teddy Talks. Uh, we had 26 days with the 26th president in April and 26 days with the 26th president in May doing a program Monday through Saturday, taking Sundays off as President Theodore Roosevelt took his Sundays off. And uh, in the month of June, we get very busy here in Medora, even this year. And so we've gone to the weekly format. I thank each and every one of you that has stuck with us. Uh, you might say that, uh, well, we're going to emphasize quality over quantity. And as I put my notes together last night and did some printing this morning, I thought, well, I really do hope that uh, given a week's worth of time that we might be able to uh, perfect the messages that come across. At its heart and core, Teddy Talks hopes to go back in history and sometimes using this date in history, locating speeches that Theodore Roosevelt made, um, writings that may have been published on that day. Even more, I think Theodore Roosevelt would like us to uh, look at his actions. And so uh, we're going back in history now that we're a weekly Teddy Talk, we'll summarize a week, and in doing so, a, a lot of good stuff will fall by the wayside. I want to be respectful of your time, and sometimes on a longer Teddy Talk, maybe if we do go a little long on Saturdays, you might uh, uh, save it for more than one visit, and I'll try to let you know if there's uh, multiple speeches uh, where that recommended break might be. We are here in the uh, second week of June, I misspoke at our last weekly meeting. I had July 14th on my mind uh, to uh, commemorate the Bastille Day death of Quentin Roosevelt in 1918. Last week we had spoken about the service and sacrifice of uh, Kermit, Ted Jr. and Archie, and uh, I uh, um, mixed up my June 14th Flag Day that we'll celebrate here in Medora with an all-horse Flag Day parade and uh, my uh, July 14th Bastille Day. So we'll continue on with our programs through the summer. Uh, there may be uh, some days when we've got to figure out the schedule. 
July 4th is a Saturday. What a wonderful weekend that will be for everyone. And uh, we'll be in a parade at 8 a.m. on July 4th in Dickinson, nearby Dickinson. I'd like to uh, salute uh, my dear friends at the Dickinson Rotary Club. Rotary was founded in 1905. It is committed to service above self. When I perform for Rotary organizations throughout the country, I very often uh, at the club or district level will ask Theodore Roosevelt stated uh, his father uh, in first person, my father, Theodore Roosevelt would have been a good Rotarian service above self. Coffee this morning brought to you by the Sycamore Rotary Club. I'm uh, 30 years as a Rotarian this year and Rotary has always given me so much more than I've been able to give back. But if you come and visit Medora and you happen to be here on a Wednesday, if my calendar allows me to go to my home club, we'll go to the Dickinson Rotary Club that meets nearby and uh, probably hear a great speaker and have a nice luncheon. But here's to coffee on a Saturday morning with you that are taking time for Teddy Talks. It means the world to me. We normally begin with an on this date in history and there's always a bit of a bent of on this date in history for uh, Theodore Roosevelt. Very often looking at uh, world history or American history with which he would have been so familiar, such a great student uh, up to his time. And then looking at the history of his era and even sometimes I love to, to find individuals born in the uh, 1890s, the 1900s, the 19 teens, to think that certainly they, uh, if they grew up here in America, they had a youth that was uh, significantly impacted by the, uh, uh, the force and leadership of Theodore Roosevelt. I hope that's uh, not just a, a bit of a fantasy or an indulgement on my part. On this date in history, June 8th, 1809, the death in New York City of Thomas Paine, the uh, English-American uh, theorist and author. Uh, we'll know him uh, for Common Sense, the pamphlet that was the most popular publication during our revolutionary times in which uh, Thomas Paine wrote in, only in part, there's so much more to that brief pamphlet, but he wrote, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of their country. He would later go on to participate and be imprisoned uh, uh, and, and saved in the midst of the French Revolution. And it was in that era uh, he advocated after the success of the American Revolution, went back to England and uh, would have probably gotten in a great deal of legal trouble there and went on to France and, and published The Age of Reason. And this was uh, in part the overthrow of, uh, uh, of science and uh, uh, the scientific method, the overthrowing of the, uh, uh, of the old chains in part of religion as he had seen done in the French Revolution. So he published The Age of Reason. And it was those anti-religious views that may have uh, inspired Theodore Roosevelt I believe to have written privately rather than to have publicly said, he called Thomas Paine that dirty little atheist. And uh, some have held that against uh, Theodore Roosevelt. June 8th, 1845, June 8th, 1845, the death in Nashville, Tennessee of Andrew Jackson at his home where he is buried, the Hermitage, seventh president of the United States and a Democrat and uh, it is in this decade that you'll see the uh, end of the naming of Democratic uh, Party fundraisers as Jefferson Jackson dinners. I believe many Democratic uh, organizations have now left those the names of those two presidents behind. 
June 8th, 1867, the birth in Richland Center, Wisconsin of Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, such an impact on American architecture, Japanese architecture, the uh, earthquake proof uh, building, part of uh, his uh, practical application. Uh, this was wonderful though, uh, of the year following on the same day, June 8th, 1868, the birth in Wilmington, North Carolina of Robert Robinson Taylor, an American architect and educator. Taylor was the first African-American student enrolled at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the first accredited African-American architect when he graduated in 1892. He was an early and influential member of the Tuskegee Institute faculty. He went on to be involved in the founding of the University of North Carolina Fayetteville and was on faculty there. He died on December 13, 1942, while attending services in the Tuskegee Chapel, the building that he considered his most outstanding achievement as an architect. He also designed the President's House at Tuskegee. I believe it's called the Oaks. It's where uh, Booker T. Washington and his family lived. It's been my pleasure to be in both of those uh, buildings designed by Robert Robinson Taylor. June 8th, moving for, uh, 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 closer to our time, 1874, Cochise, the Chiricahua Apache Indian chief. Uh, he uh, died on this date in 1874, is uh, buried and tombed in Cochise's stronghold uh, on the uh, Indian lands in Arizona. June 8th, 1906, Theodore Roosevelt signs the Antiquities Act into law authorizing the, the uh, president to uh, name certain parcels of uh, public land with uh, significant historical, prehistoric, or scientific interest as national monuments. The president would use the powers 18 times, and all but four of our presidents have used the power since to declare additional national monuments. Theodore Roosevelt held the record at 18 until surpassed by President Barack Obama with 26 national monuments. If you come and visit Medora, you can visit nearby um, Devil's Tower in Wyoming or Jewel Cave in South Dakota. A couple of those national monuments, they include, of course, the Grand Canyon. In 1908, when Congress still refused to name the Grand Canyon a national park, Theodore Roosevelt used the powers that had been delegated to him by the Monuments and Antiquities Act to sign into uh, a law the National Monument uh, of the Grand Canyon. and. Uh, uh, the legacy of the uh, Antiquities Act, we must thank Congressman John Fletcher Lacey of Oskaloosa, Iowa, uh, another gentleman worthy of our study in the future. Uh, this uh, name will come to us a couple of times and then in Theodore Roosevelt's one of his speeches today. June 9th, 1732, James Oglethorpe is granted a royal charter for the colony of the future United States state of Georgia. June 9, 1772, the British revenue schooner Gaspi or Gaspé is burned in Narragansett Bay, Rhode Island. Really the first act of violence following the Boston Massacre two years prior, uh, where the violence was done by the British soldiers against the, uh, the rioters, the uh, taunters in Boston. Uh, this burning of this uh, English government ship, a revenue uh, ship, supposed to enforce the, uh, uh, the trade policies uh, of, the, uh, of the Crown, uh, burned by American patriots. Mr. Whipple, I believe, uh, uh, Captain Whipple involved in the burning. June 9th, 1851, the birth in Baltimore, Maryland of Charles Joseph 
Bonaparte, American lawyer, politician, Republican, the 46th United States Attorney General. I believe uh, uh, he was the concluding Attorney General of three during Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. Uh, he was, however, previously within the Roosevelt administration, one of Theodore Roosevelt's secretaries of the Navy. I say one of and secretaries because during his seven and one half years as president, Theodore Roosevelt had six secretaries of the Navy. Two insights. First, he must trust you uh, a great deal if he uh, were to appoint you to be secretary of the Navy. Secondly, you would still, in fact, be the assistant secretary of the Navy for Theodore Roosevelt would run and did the United States Navy during his time. Boy, I, I don't normally give editorial comments, but uh, that one I think appropriate. Uh, Bonaparte was one of the founders and for a time the president of the National Municipal League, an organization that still exists today. He was also a longtime activist for the rights of black residents in his city of Baltimore. He died in 1921 in Baltimore. He is indeed the grandson of Napoleon Bonaparte's younger brother. Uh, there's been a branch of the Bonaparte family in the United States uh, uh, since uh, uh, the first banishment of Napoleon. June 9th, 1891, the birth in Peru, Indiana of Cole Porter, the American composer and songwriter, would die in 1964. Kiss Me Kate, his most popular musical, and uh, Begin the Begoyne, and I've Got You Under My Skin, and I get a kick out of you. I, uh, when I look at it, I think uh, certainly Frank Sinatra has sung the uh, Paul Quarter, uh, Paul Cole Porter Library uh, into our memories. June 9th, 1915, probably to the uh, great relief of Theodore Roosevelt in part, William Jennings Bryan resigns as Woodrow Wilson's Secretary of State uh, over a disagreement regarding the United States handling the sinking of the RMS Lusitania. Imagine as uh, soft as Wilson's and ineffective as Wilson's response would be in the mind and writings of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, Bryan was actually uh, against any sort of uh, uh, increased preparedness, uh, armament, or uh, confrontation uh, with uh, the German Kaiser at that time. June 10th, 1898, in the Spanish-American War, the Battle of Guantanamo Bay. United States Marines begin the invasion of Spanish-held Cuba. June 11th, 1880, the birth in Missoula County, Montana, of Jeanette Ranklin, American social worker and politician, a member of Congress. She served two terms. Uh, this is fascinating that the terms were so far apart and yet at such historic times. Her first term was 1917 to 1919. Uh, she was a member of the House for the last apportionment under which Montana had one at-large member of Congress. The uh, subsequent election, uh, the election of 1918, uh, uh, expanded uh, to two districts in, uh, in Montana. Her first term, 1917 to 1919, her second term, 1941 to 1943. Uh, in each of those uh, legislative sessions, Congress declared war. Uh, and in each of those legislative sessions, in uh, 1917, um, Jeanette, Rank uh, Jeanette Rankin voted against going to war with uh, Germany uh, in World War I. Uh, she was one of 50 House members to do so. She was the only member of the House of Representatives to vote against the declaration of war against Japan in December of 1941. June 11th, 1920, 
During the United States Republican National Convention in Chicago, Republican Party leaders gathered in a room at the Blackstone Hotel to come to a consensus on their candidate for the U.S. presidential election. Uh, this would have uh, uh, this bounced Harding out of obscurity and into the uh, presidential nomination. It led the Associated Press writer to coin the political phrase "smoke-filled room." Remember that 1920 convention that. Uh, uh, Hiram Johnson, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's former running mate uh, on the 1912 progressive ticket, the governor of uh, California, now senator, I think, it, by 1920, and uh, Leonard Wood, General Leonard Wood, Theodore Roosevelt's commanding officer uh, in the uh, regiment in Cuba, later the head of the preparedness program at Plattsburgh. Two men so closely associated with Theodore Roosevelt were the two leading vote-getters uh, in the uh, delegate uh, count at the Republican National Convention on, on at least the first uh, one, two, or, or, or three ballots. Uh, moving through the calendar and getting closer to uh, June 13th, June 12th, 1806, the birth in Molhausen, Prussia, of John A. Roebling, the German-American engineer. He designed the Brooklyn Bridge, the Roebling Bridge that goes across the Ohio at Cincinnati. He would die in 1869, complications, uh, from uh, uh, an injury, a, a, a ferry, uh, somehow pinning and crashing into his foot during the building of the, uh, uh, of the bridge, uh, such that his foot was amputated. He would continue to supervise the building through a window in the bedroom uh, in uh, Brooklyn Heights in which he was convalescing. The uh, bridge would be completed by, under the supervision of his son, Washington Augustus Roebling. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uncle, Robert Roosevelt, would serve as a commissioner on the uh, commission overseeing the construction of the bridge. His name appears on a commissioner's plaque upon the bridge. And of course, David McCullough. We love to recommend his uh, mornings on horseback about Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, the great author also gave us a pathway between the seas, a wonderful uh, uh, study of the Panama Canal. His Brooklyn Bridge is also another uh, wonderful writing that uh, certainly gives you a great deal of what was going on in New York City during a, an ascendancy of one young Theodore Roosevelt. June 12, 1864, the birth in West Englewood, New Jersey, of Frank Chapman, the American ornithologist, photographer, and author. He would die in 1945. Uh, Chapman came up with the original idea for the Autobahn Christmas bird count. Frank Chapman and Theodore Roosevelt were friends and correspondents. When we celebrate at Pelican Island uh, off the coast of Sebastian, Florida, the establishment of the first federal bird sanctuary by presidential declaration by Theodore Roosevelt in March of 1903, we celebrate a, a work that uh, was really due to the influence of Frank Chapman and uh, his beating the feathers with the uh, Florida Ornithological Union and the Florida Audubon Society in harmony with that effort. June 12th, 1924, the birth in Milton, Massachusetts of George H.W. Bush, 41st President of the United States. And I was delighted as a, a young man, uh, President of the American Legion Boys Nation, Boys State and Girls State, a wonderful civics program sponsored by that organization that stands for God and Country, an organization that uh, had as its first nominee for its presidency, Ted Roosevelt Jr. Ted declined the nomination of his fellow officers in, in the meeting in Paris, France. He said, boys, I've got to go uh, home and get involved in politics, and this American Legion is too important to be involved in politics. The uh, uh, wonderful legacy of Frank Chapman, we can recall that when we participate in the 
Christmas bird count every year, as I know is done here at Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Uh, oh, I, and I've just come over to George Bush tonight. June 12th, 1963, uh, the uh, field secretary for the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Medgar Evers, murdered on this date, June 12th, 1963, in Jackson, Mississippi. June 12th, 1987, at the Brandenburg Gate, West Berlin, U.S. President Ronald Reagan publicly challenges Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down this wall, the Berlin Wall. A little bit of history uh, from a more modern sense, just uh, uh, bridging on our times, but also uh, quite impactful. That same June 12th, uh, 1963, was the date that George Wallace stood in the doorway at the University of Alabama Law School. It's also the same date that President Kennedy spoke to the uh, American people from the White House advocating for uh, uh, civil rights law, for public accommodations, and for uh, uh, voting rights. And of course, these would be enacted in the 1964 and 1965 Civil Rights Acts uh, that uh, came after his death in Dallas. June 13th, finally today's date, 1740. We've got James Oglethorpe, the Georgian, appearing again. He begins an unsuccessful attempt to take Spanish Florida during the siege of St. Augustine. June 13, 1774, Rhode Island becomes the first of Britain's North American colonies to ban the importation of slaves. June 13, 1777, the Marquis de Lafayette lands near Charleston, South Carolina to begin his assistance to the Continental Congress and to uh, uh, the young United States Army. June 13, 1805, on the Lewis and Clark expedition that came so close to us here along the Missouri River through North Dakota. Scouting ahead of the expedition, Meriwether Lewis and four companions sight the Great Falls of the Missouri River. You can visit Great Falls, Montana when you come for your visit in the West. Thank you again for your patience as I, I, I bounce through some of that uh, history on this date. Uh, again, maybe a bit more of a leisurely pace when we gather on Saturday, maybe a second cup of coffee for listeners. There are several speeches that uh, were available to me, uh, uh, being a week's worth of history. I do want to read to you uh, Governor Theodore Roosevelt's address in Rochester, New York on June 10th, 1899, uh, of the uh, dedication, the unveiling of a memorial to Frederick Douglass the great abolitionist and conscience of America uh, and publisher. And uh, this monument used to stand, as many monuments did before the uh, dominance of the automobile, uh, in a central uh, intersection of traffic in Rochester, in downtown Rochester. And with the automobile, the expansion of the roads, the traffic, the statue was moved by the people of Rochester to Highland Park, and I wonder if you've been. It's a wonderful place uh, up in the hills above Rochester. It's got a wonderful uh, performance uh, outdoor shell. Uh, reminds me of the Hollywood Bowl. And Frederick Douglass is at a prominent and high point in that park. He's uh, quite, a, uh, uh, quite a figure, uh, a standing uh, erect statue. The, the uh, Highland Park also has several Spanish cannon captured during the Spanish-American War. Uh, so the spirit of Theodore Roosevelt there uh, is there uh, perhaps twice. 
there may have been a time when uh, Roosevelt himself spoke in Highland Park, but I, I may misspeak. Let's get through uh, that speech and, and see how uh, the stamina of your uh, speaker, I, I think certainly then we must at least take the uh, centennial of the founding of the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1902. June 10th, 1899, Rochester, New York, at the unveiling of the Frederick Douglass Monument. Mr. President, I am glad to have the honor of being here today. I am proud to be able to do my part in paying respect to the memory of a man who was a worthy representative of his race because he was a worthy representative of the American nation. Doubly proud I am to take part in a representative way in a demonstration in which so prominent a part is played by the old soldiers who fought for four years for the freedom of that race to which Frederick Douglass belonged in an order that there might be an undivided and indissoluble union. Doubly proud am I, comrades of the last war, that you and I had the chance last summer to show that we were at least anxious to be not unworthy sons of those who fought in the great war. Here today, in sight of the monument of the great colored American, let us all strive to pay the respect due his memory by living in such a manner as to determine that a man shall be judged for what a man is without regard to his color, race, or creed, or aught else but his worth as a man. That, last, that lesson has a double side, and I would dwell upon the one side just as I would on the other side. The worst enemy of the colored race is the colored man who commits some hideous wrong, especially if that be the worst of all crimes, rape. And the worst enemy of the white race is the white man who avenges that crime by another crime, equally infamous. I would, I could preach that doctrine that it is best for each to know and realize that all over this country, not merely in the South, but in the North as well, shameless deeds of infamous hideousness should be punished speedily, but by the law, not by another crime. I would preach to the colored man that the vicious and disorderly elements in his own race are the worst enemies of his race, and that he is in honor bound to war against them. I would preach to the white man that he who takes parts in lawless acts and such lynchings as we have recently known is guilty not only of a crime against the colored race, but guilty of a crime against his own race and against the whole nation. If it were in my power, I would feel that I could render service to my country, such as I could render in no other way, by preaching that doctrine in its two sides to all who are in any degree responsible for the crimes by which our country has been disgraced in the past. It is for the interest of every man, black and white, to see that every criminal, black and white, is punished at once, but only under the law. Every scoundrel who commits rape or some similar infamy, and every body of men who usurp the province of the law, who usurp it by committing deeds which would make a red Indian blush with shame, prove that they are not only unworthy of citizenship in this country, 
but they are the worst enemies this country contains. There is a great lesson taught by the life of Frederick Douglass, a lesson we can all of us learn, not merely from the standpoint of his relations with the colored race, but his relations with the state. The lesson that was taught by the colored statesman was the lesson of truth, honesty, of strong courage, of striving for the right, the lesson of disinterested and fearless performance of civic duty. I would appeal to every man in this great audience to take to heart the lesson taught by his life, to realize that he must strive to fulfill his duty as an individual citizen if he wishes to see the state do its duty. The state is only the aggregate of the individual citizens. There is another thought that I want to preach to you, a lesson to be learned from the life of the colored statesman Frederick Douglass. Strive to do justice to all men, exact it for yourselves, and do it to others. I want to draw an application of immediate consequence at this moment. The legislature passed at its last session and placed on the statute books one of the most beneficial and righteous laws that this state has seen in recent years, a law declaring that corporations that derive the greater part of their profits from the franchises they enjoy shall bear a fair share of the burden of taxation. In putting that law on the statute books, we were animated by no vindictive spirit. We were neither for nor against corporations or private individuals. We acted not as a friend of the man of means nor his enemy, simply as a friend of all men who do their whole duty to the state. Since that law has been put on the statute books, I have seen in the public press notices in more than one form that efforts are to be made to upset that law in the courts. In more than one instance, notice has been given that the effort was to be made by trying to take technical advantage of some provisions put in the law for the express purpose of seeing that no injustice was done to the corporations. Just think of it, of corporations striving to work the undoing of a law, seizing on the provision inserted for the protection of the corporations themselves. I do not think it possible that the law can be declared unconstitutional on the grounds claimed, but I wish to emphasize the danger these men bring not only to the state, but to the corporations they represent. I say this as one who deprecates class or social hostility. The franchise tax has come to stay. The corporations should make up their minds absolutely that if success attended the attempt to show the present law to be unconstitutional, possibly a possibility I do not conceive more drastic law could be placed on the statute books. Let them learn that on the one side, and may you on the other side instruct your representatives, that they approach the subject in no spirit of vindictiveness, in no spirit of demagogy, but with a view to do equal justice to all men. I am glad Frederick Douglass has left behind him men of his race who can take up his mantle, that he has left such a man as Booker T. Washington, a man who is striving to teach his people to rise by toil to be better citizens, by resolute determination to make themselves worthy of American citizenship until the whole country is forced to recognize their good citizenship. I am glad to have the chance to come here because I feel that all Americans should pay honor to Frederick Douglass. 
I am glad to be able to speak to so many men of his race and to impress on them too the lesson to be drawn from the life of such a man. I am more than glad to speak to an audience of Americans in the presence of a monument to the memory of Frederick Douglass, a man who possessed the eminent qualities of courage and disinterestedness in the service of his country. To appeal to you to demand those qualities in your public men that made Douglas great qualities that resulted in the courageous performance of every duty, private and public. I do hope we're still in connection with you uh, uh, and uh, that you'll be able to hear these words now spoken by Theodore Roosevelt, June 11th, 1902, at the centennial uh, celebration of the establishment of the United States Military Academy. He references uh, Colonel Mills, the superintendent of uh, West Point and his uh, compatriot in the war in Cuba. Colonel Mills, graduates of West Point, knew the men and women who are drawn to them by ties of kinship or by the simple fact that you are Americans and therefore of necessity drawn to them. I am glad to have the chance of saying a word to you today. There is little need for me to say how well your performance has squared with the prophetic promise made on your behalf by the greatest of Americans, Washington. This institution has completed its first hundred years of life. During that century, no other educational institution in the land has contributed as many names as West Point to the honor roll of the nation's greatest citizens. Colonel Mills, I claim to be a historian, and I speak simply in the spirit of one, simply as a reciter of facts when I say what I have said. And more than that, not merely has West Point contributed a greater number of the men who stand highest on the nation's honor roll, but I think beyond question that, taken as a whole, the average graduate of West Point during this hundred years has given a greater sum of service to the country through his life than has the average graduate of any other institution in this broad land. Now, gentlemen, that is not surprising. It is what we had a right to expect from this military university founded by the nation. It is what we had a right to expect, but I am glad that the expectation has been made good and of all the institutions in this country, none is more absolutely American, none in the proper sense of the word more absolutely democratic than this. Here we care nothing for the boy's birthplace, nor his creed, nor his social standing. Here we care nothing save for his worth as he is able to show it. Here you represent with almost mathematical exactness all the country geographically. You are drawn from every walk of life by a method of choice made to ensure, and which in the great majority of cases does ensure, that heed shall be paid to nothing save the boy's aptitude for the profession into which he seeks entrance. Here you come together as representatives of America in a higher and more peculiar sense than can possibly be true of any other institution in the land save your sister college that makes similar preparation for the service of the country on the seas. This morning, I have shaken hands with many of you, and I have met the men who stand as representatives of every great struggle 
Every great forward movement this nation has made for the last 55 or 60 years, there are some still left who took part in the Mexican War, a struggle which added to this country a territory vaster than has changed hands in Europe as a result of all the wars of the last two centuries. I meet when I see any of the older men among you, men who took part in the great civil war, when this nation was tried as in a furnace, the men who were called upon to do the one deed which had to be done under penalty of making the memory of Washington himself of little account, because if you had failed, then the failure would also have been written across the record of his work. Finally, I see the younger men as well as the older ones, the men whom I myself have seen taking part in a little war, a war that was the merest skirmish compared with the struggle in which you fought from 61 to 65, and yet a war that has had most far-reaching effects, not merely upon the destiny of this nation, but therefore upon the destiny of the world, the war with Spain. It was my good fortune to see in the campaign in Cuba how the graduates of West Point handled themselves, to see and to endeavor to profit by their example. It is a peculiar pleasure to come here today because I was at the time intimately associated with many of these, your graduates who are here. On the day before the San Juan fight, when we marched up into position, the officers with whom I was lost connection with the baggage and food. And I, for supper that night, had what Colonel Mills gave me. And the next morning, Colonel Mills was with another West Pointer, gallant ship of North Carolina. The next morning, we breakfasted together. I remember well congratulating myself that my regiment, a raw volunteer regiment, could have, to set it an example, men like Mills and Ship, whose very presence made the men cool, made them feel collected and at ease. Mills and Ship went with our regiment into action. Shortly after it began, Ship was killed, and Colonel Mills received a wound from which no one of us at the time dreamed that he would recover. I had at that time in my regiment as acting second lieutenant a cadet from West Point. He was having his holiday. He took his holiday coming down with us, and just before the assault he was shot, the bullet going, I think, into the stomach and coming out the other side. He fell, and as we came up, I leaned over him, and he said, All right, Colonel, I'm going to get well. I did not think he was, but I said, All right, I'm sure you will. And he did. He is all right now. There was never a moment during that time, by day or night, that I was not an eyewitness to some performance of duty, some bit of duty well done by a West Pointer, and I never saw a West Pointer failing in his duty. I want to be perfectly frank, gentlemen. I heard of two or three instances, but you cannot get in any body of men absolute uniformity of good conduct but I am happy to say that I never was an eyewitness to such misconduct. It was my good fortune to see what is the rule, what is the rule with only the rarest exception, the rule of duty done in a way that makes a man proud to be an American, the fellow citizen of such Americans. Your duty here at West Point has been to fit men to do well in war, but it is a noteworthy fact that you also have fitted them to do singularly well in peace. The highest positions in the land have been held, not exceptionally, 
but again and again by West Pointers. West Pointers have riven, risen to the first rank in all the occupations of civil life. Colonel Mills, I make the answer that a man who answers the question must make when I say that, while we had a right to expect that West Point would do well, we could not have expected that she would do so well as she has done. I want to say one word to those who are graduating here, and to the undergraduates as well. I was greatly impressed the other day by an article of one of your instructors, himself a West Pointer, in which he dwelt upon the changed conditions of warfare and the absolute need that the man who was to be a good officer should meet those changed conditions. I think it is going to be a great deal harder to be a first-class officer in the future than it has been in the past, in addition to the courage and steadfastness that have always been the prime requirements in a soldier you have got to show far greater fertility of resource and far greater power of individual initiative than has ever been necessary before if you are to come up to the highest level of officer-like performance of duty. As has been well said, the developments of warfare during the last few years have shown that in the future, the unit will not be the regiment nor the company nor troop. The unit will be the individual man the army is to a very great extent going to do well or ill according to the average of that individual man. If he does not know how to shoot, how to shift for himself, how both to obey orders and to accept responsibility when the emergency comes where he will not have any orders to obey. If he is not able to do all of that, and if in addition he has not got the fighting edge, you had better have him out of the army he will be a damage in it. In a battle hereafter, each man is going to be to a considerable extent alone. The formation will be so open that the youngest officer will have to take much of the responsibility that in former wars fell on his seniors, and many of the enlisted men will have to do most of their work without supervision from any officer whatsoever. The man will have to act largely alone. And if he shows a tendency to huddle up to somebody else, his usefulness will be pretty near at the end. He must draw on his own courage and resourcefulness to meet the emergencies as they come up. It will be more difficult in the future than ever before to know your profession, and more essential also. And you officers, and you who are about to become officers, if you are going to do well, have got to learn how to perform the duty which while become more essential, has become harder to perform. You want to face the fact and realize more than ever before that the honor or the shame of the country may depend upon the high average of character and capacity of the officers and enlisted men, and that the high average character and capacity in the enlisted men can to a large degree be obtained only through you, the officers that you must devote your time in peace to bringing up the standard of writing efficiency of the men under you, not merely in doing your duty so that you cannot be called to account for failure to perform it, but doing it in a way that will make any man under you abler to perform his. I noticed throughout the time that we were in Cuba that the orders given and executed were of the simplest kind, and that there was very little maneuvering practically none of the maneuvering of the parade ground. Now I want you to weigh what I say, for if you take only half of it, you will invert it. 
I found out very soon in my regiment that the best man was the man who had been in the regular army in actual service out in the West, campaigning on the plains. If he had been a good man in the regular army in actual service on the plains, he was the best man that I could get a hold of. On the other hand, if he had merely served in time of peace a couple of years in an eastern garrison where he did practically nothing outside of parade grounds and barracks, or if he had been in an ordinary National Guard regiment, then one of two things was true. If he understood that he had only learned 5% of war, he was 5% better than anyone who had learned none of it, and that was a big advance. But if he thought he had also learned the other 95%, he was worse than anyone else. I recollect perfectly one man who had been a corporal in the regular army. This young fellow joined us sure that he knew everything, confident that war consisted in nice parade ground maneuvers. It was almost impossible to turn his attention from trying the very difficult task of making my cow punches keep in a straight line to the easier task of training them so that they could do the most efficient fighting when the occasion arose. He confused the essentials and the non-essentials. The non-essentials are so uh, petty and pretty and so easy that it, it is a great contention, a great temptation to think that your duty lies in perfecting yourself and the men under you in them. You have got to do that too, but if you only do that, you will not be worth your salt when the day of trial comes. Gentlemen, I do not intend to try here to preach to you upon the performance of your duties. It has been your special business to learn to do that. I do ask you to remember the difference there is in the military profession now from what it has been in the past time. To remember that the final test of soldiership is not excellence in parade ground formation, but efficiency in actual service in the field, and that the usefulness the real and great usefulness in the parade ground and barracks work comes from its being used not as an end, but as one of the means to an end. I ask you to remember that. I do not have to ask you to remember what you cannot forget, the lessons of loyalty, of courage, of steadfast adherence to the highest standards of honor and uprightness, which all men draw when they breathe the atmosphere of this great institution. I hope that uh, something uh, read today might have touched you. I do hope that technology has been our friend, again, despite a, an emergency statement on my screen. Uh, the uh, other speeches that uh, might have been uh, made today included uh, the dedication of the Georgia State Building uh, at the Jamestown Exposition in 1907. And of course, that building was a replica built by the people of Georgia, a replica of historic Bullock Hall in Roswell, Georgia, the building in which Theodore Roosevelt's parents, Theodore Roosevelt and Martha Mitty Bullock were married in December of 1853. But I do think uh, you've been very patient with me to read through those two speeches, patient again with my occasional tongue tying and and the fact that indeed that was uh, his uh, president's remarks with regards to a pretty formation rather than a petty formation. And uh, I continue to hope to do my best to uh, be a man in the technological arena by bringing you Teddy Talks on Saturdays throughout this summer. I wish you all the best. I hope that this weekend is one that you enjoy with your family and friends, that you breathe the, uh, the outdoor air. Hope you might come to Medora, North Dakota 
for a visit this summer. And uh, I wish you goodbye and good luck. We'll see you next Saturday on Teddy Talks. And actually, uh, a column that uh, could have been read today, I'll post an excerpt uh, at Theodore Roosevelt, at Teddy Roosevelt Show uh, on the Facebook in order for you to see Theodore Roosevelt's thoughts on reading the Bible. That'll be our Sunday message from Theodore Roosevelt. Again, thank you very much for your visit. Hope to see you next Saturday here on Teddy Talk.